these kids were promised $500 once they completed, you know, having this bomb go off on their little bodies. They had actually been kidnapped and were going from car to car until they got into one guy's car who basically told them, you guys shouldn't do this. And he let them out. Welcome to Enoughness. My name is Lisa Wang, national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur. This is a show that dives into the deeply personal stories of top business leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and athletes who share the defining inflection points that help them embrace their life's purpose and answer the question, how much is good enough? On today's show, I'm joined by Kimberly Motley. She has earned the reputation of one of the world's most respected and successful international lawyers. Motley is the first and only foreign lawyer to ever litigate in Afghanistan's courts, and her practice has grown to where she represents people on every single continent, except Antarctica. She has been involved in some of the most important human rights cases of the post-Taliban era. She's the first independent lawyer to represent a victim of domestic violence in an Afghan court, and she has achieved some incredible feats, including decriminalizing running away from home as a crime in Afghanistan, stopping the legalization of child rapes in Bolivia, returning children in nearly impossible abduction cases, and in each case, Motley challenges outdated illegal cultural norms and focuses on laws that are underutilized. In 2014, Richard Branson named her as one of the 14 most inspirational people, and she has an award-winning international documentary that is showcased in various film festivals globally. Fun fact, Kim was a former beauty queen. She was Miss Wisconsin America. And in today's show, Kim will be sharing with us what it's like to witness some of the most horrible human crimes, what it's like to set up your life in a country where laws and human rights are not a given. Kim has made a life around giving a voice to those who don't have one, and in today's climate where we see so much horrendous news, hopefully this interview will help you think about how it's possible to be part of the solution and to start taking action towards that thing that you believe you can do to make a difference. Kim, it is such an honor to have you on the show today. Well, thank you for having me, Lisa. I appreciate it. There are so many things I want to dig into, but the first thing that I noticed is that your full name is Kimberly Chongyang Motley. Where's your family from and what's, what's your background? Well, my father is African-American and he was, is from Louisiana. My mother um, was actually born in North Korea, um, but when she was a baby, she was uh, taken to South Korea. Mm. And then you, when did they come over to the U.S.? Um, they, came, they came over to the U.S., I believe it was in 74, 73, 74. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and my father... The, how they met with, I'm sorry, my father was in the Air Force. And so they met in, in Korea when he was serving. Got it. So what's that, what's that dynamic like for you growing up, you know, half African-American, half Korean? Well, I mean, to be honest, it was really um, interesting. My mother um, is obviously um, was an immigrant. And I remember she and I would sit and learn English together because she didn't really know English. And would sit and watch Sesame Street together when I was a baby. And so that's how, that's what helped her sort of learn English. Um, we grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood in Milwaukee, and I went to a predominantly white Catholic school. 
So for me, um, I was always um, able to sort of intersect between different ethnic groups, between different uh, sort of uh, financial classes, and I found it to be a real benefit. Mm-hmm. And you were growing up in Wisconsin, which I, I am actually from Wisconsin as well. Um, and how did, how did being in Wisconsin affect you? Well, you know, in, in Milwaukee in particular, it's a highly segregated and divisive city in a lot of ways. Um, for a number of years, it's seen as um, the number one most segregated city in the U.S. Um, it's a place where 50% of African-American males um, have some type of criminal record or um, have been incarcerated, unfortunately. It's a place where, um, I, I believe it was last year, it was deemed as the worst place to educate a black child. Um, so there's a lot of significant race issues in Milwaukee that I think are very um, specific to Milwaukee, um, that, that not necessarily specific, but are highlighted more Milwaukee. Um, in my neighborhood, it was a predominantly black neighborhood. We were the only family that had, you know, a Korean mom and a black father. And so mm-hmm. there were issues with that because frankly, uh, you know, blacks and Koreans don't always get along. Um, so it was an interesting environment to grow up in. Um, it was an interesting city to be in. Um, I do love Milwaukee, um, but it's, it's just sort of, like many cities and like many places, a work in progress. Mm-hmm. How did these race relations and spending that time in Milwaukee affect you mentally? Well, I think, frankly, for me personally, the race relations in Milwaukee um, as a child, I think I was very desensitized to it because I was placed in so many different environments. Um, which was very good for me, frankly. Um, it never, to be honest, for me, there never was, it never was a place where, you know, I felt any type of way being Black or any type of way being Korean. Um, I did, well, let me take that back. I did feel more of the tension when it dealt with my parents. You know, I would see people sort of looking at them funny. Maybe they were looking at me funny. I just didn't even notice it. Um, you know, I, I saw how different people, like especially black people really react to my mother, how white people react to my father, how they reacted to other people from different races, you know, but to me, it wasn't, it never was an issue, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's never something that my parents highlighted for me as a barrier. Um, They always sort of pointed it out as sort of a, uh, a positive, you know, and that, you know, we were special. Um, because we were the only kids like me in my neighborhood. It was a very uh, uh, urban area. Uh, mostly black people lived in my area. Um, I don't know of any other Asians that went to my school or when I was in grade school. Matter of fact, we were the only black family in my school. We were the only Asian family in my school. And so I was always used to being, frankly, one of the only. So it never was an issue for me. That's so critical because I also, I grew up as the only as Asian in my community in Wisconsin. And I think it, there's, there's such a different mindset that can start at an early age where I, I always felt awkward um, and not special. And so it's, it's really interesting to hear that there was um, a very different perspective coming from your side that really did stem from your parents and their influence in saying you're special. 
Yes. And I think also because I don't know if you have any siblings, but I have two brothers and one sister. So we mm. always have each other too, you know, so that sort of helped. Mm-hmm. So now you're, um, you, you've grown up and you became Miss, uh, Miss, Mrs. Wisconsin, America, um, beauty queen. And how do you end up in Afghanistan? Well, I mean, um, to be honest, the Mrs. Wisconsin was a really fun experience. I really did that as a dare. (laughs) It wasn't something that I, I'm not this, I don't want people to think I'm this beauty queen person. Like I was Miss Cutie Pie. Like I have this whole (laughs) CV. It just was something I did as a fun thing. And frankly, to be funny when I won, frankly, that made it funnier. Um, And so, and it was a good experience. I'm glad I did it. Um, But basically, I went to Afghanistan in 2008, and I went there as part of this U.S. Department of State justice program to train and mentor Afghan defense attorneys. At that point in time, I had been a practicing attorney in the public defender's office for almost six years, and it really was a financial decision for me to go there. It was an opportunity for, I had three kids, it was an opportunity to make more than triple my salary, and it was really supposed to be go there, be a part of this program, and then come back after a year. And they were tripling salary. Why? Because no one wanted to go? I think it, was, it, it just is, you know, because it's a, it's a conflict zone. So mm-hmm. it, the salary increases because of that. Yeah, and also people don't necessarily want to go to Afghanistan. Um, you know, all, all those things, you're leaving your, your home. You know, it's a big sacrifice for anybody that leaves their family or leaves their home whether you have kids or don't have kids. So, you know, all those things combined um, was why the salary is so high. Mm -hmm. And were you a mother at that point already? Yes, I had three kids, yes. So how were you feeling when you were going to Afghanistan for the first time? Well, you know, I felt uh, very sad. Like I was questioning whether or not this was the right thing to do as a mother. Um, I was, you know... it was good that we had a plan at that point in time to say we're going to be there for a year. I was always, and I was also worried about my kids, of course, um, whether or not this is something that they would understand, you know, growing up, um, being away for a year. I'd never been away from them like that before. And frankly, it also was my first time leaving the U S was going to Afghanistan. Um, so I didn't know what to expect, but I felt, I felt like I was on this mission. I felt very sad and isolated to be honest. How many people did you go there with? Um, in the program, I believe there are about 15 other American lawyers that were also part, 15 to 20 other American or- lawyers that are also part of this program to train Afghan defense attorneys, to train prosecutors, to train judges, and to really capacity build Afghanistan's legal system. And after a year, what happens? Well, I'll, I'll say within that year, what happened is I went around the country And I met a lot of foreigners who were locked up in Afghanistan from the UK, US, you know, Australia, South Africa. And these were English speaking foreigners, um, men and women who weren't getting any type of legal representation. And also their embassies weren't or couldn't really do much for them. And so it was a combination of me sort of having my family support to stay longer, number one. Number two, me missing court because I'm a litigator, really. 
And then three, a real curiosity into what practicing law would be like in Afghanistan that made that pushed me to quit my job with the U.S. State Department and pushed me into starting taking cases where I was representing foreigners that were locked up in country. Mm-hmm. And what so happened I, after that? So in 2009, I quit the program that I was a um, working with U.S. State Department as a contractor, and I essentially just started practicing law in Afghanistan and started taking cases. And so since 2009, that's what I've been doing is representing people. Um, my, you know, my practice has grown, um, but representing people in Afghanistan and now in other c- countries as well on various criminal, commercial, and civil issues. So you basically went there supposedly for a year and just never came back. You set up shop because of what you saw there and the impact that you could potentially make in the Afghan courts. Yes. And it was just, you know, the stuff that I saw was was stuff I wasn't expecting to see. You know, I had thousands and thousands of conversations with people that were locked up throughout the country. I just started traveling the country and talking to people in prison. And one thing that was shocking was, number one, the complete access I had. I mean, I would just show up to a province and be given access to a prison because no one was doing it. And I would just talk to people. More more importantly, I would just listen to people. And just hearing their stories about how they were being tortured, you know, literally and figuratively in this legal system that was and these were Afghans and foreigners that were completely ignoring their rights was shocking. Seeing people, you know, tell me what happened to them in court, that they didn't have a lawyer, they weren't allowed to talk. Um, Meeting women that were in prison for being raped. um, And the judges knew that they are being raped and were completely blaming them for it. Um, Meeting children that were in prison for being attempted suicide bombers and hearing their stories about how a lot of their recruitment that was happening with them was done through the mosque and things like that. You know, meeting kids with Down syndrome that were in prison for attempted suicide bombers, um, talking to foreigners locked up about how they, you know, they're constantly being um, harassed and how no one really wanted to represent them. You know, it just, the stories were so interesting and heartbreaking, but also many, many of the stories are very similar to where it was like, there must be some truth in this. And so from those stories and those conversations and listening to what people had to say, you know, I couldn't just walk away from that. Mm. You know, I had to do something about it. Mm-hmm. What was one story that really stood out to you, vividly stood out to you that was like, just just hit home? Well, I mean, one story that sort of really hit home were was about uh, these four little boys that I met um, in Afghanistan. And they were from a northern province. Um, and I met them in Kabul, where they were locked up. And two of the boys, uh, one for sure had Down syndrome. The second one, I suspected he had some type of mental issues, but I, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. I couldn't diagnose it or anything. Um, but just listening to their stories about how they were very religious and how they would go to their mosque every day um, 
with the encouragement of their parents and how there were men at the mosque that were recruiting them and frankly raping them and trying and grooming them to be attempted suicide bombers and how they were told by these men to not to tell their parents that this was happening other their other otherwise their parents would get killed they would kill their parents and so these kids were promised you know $500 once they completed the mission of you know having this bomb go off on their little bodies and they had actually been kidnapped from the northern province and were sort of going from car to car until they got into one guy's car who basically told them which was a miracle frankly and said you know what you guys shouldn't do this and he let them out of the car now imagine and by the way these kids were about 10 years old now imagine being 10 years old and you're in the middle of nowhere and you're let out of a vehicle by a man to say don't you don't have to do this so what these kids then did is they went to the first law enforcement officer that they found and because they were so naive they went to the the, the police officer and they said hey we're lost and we're suicide bombers and we need to get home could you please help us and so the police officers basically said yes and he arrested them and then they were raped by those police officers mm. and then they ended up in prison so when i talked to them they had went through this whole situation and they sort of explained to me how they were going to get this money after they completed the mission i mean the two little boys the one with down syndrome and the other one i talked to them individually and together they didn't even realize that they were going to die they just thought their parents would be this is what their parents wanted because they forced them to go into this mosque but their parents had no idea that they were being recruited in this way um but they just wanted to get that money for their parents not realizing that fulfilling the mission would mean that they would die um so that story and and then I, they told me about how they were taught to hate foreigners and you know how foreigners were very um loose and were very disrespectful to Islam and all these other negative things about foreigners and they were sitting there talking to me and crying and just it was really super super sad mm. for them well, and for me well clearly you're you then saw these things and just took action rather than kind of sitting and feeling overwhelmed and hopeless. So what happens after that? I mean, how do you even go about trying to tackle these issues? Well, you mean for that specific problem? No, just just I mean that specific one it could but even in general, like you you there's a whole separate like Islamic code and Afghan constitution, like how do you it just seems like such a huge feat with so many of these cases like what's what's the first step i mean the first step is listening you know it's listening to the problem um trying to get as much information with regards to that problem um that's always the first step getting a real and then asking the right questions which you know now i understand what those questions were at that point in time i didn't necessarily understand all the right questions it's it's learning as you go um you know for these problems i don't want to like pat myself on the back like you know i don't see how anyone could walk away from 
hearing stuff like this. And I think a normal human being would try to help and try to figure out how to make this better. Um, I think anyone would do that, frankly. Um, so it's just trying to problem solve in a very different environment, trying to read, you know, reading about the law, reading about reading um, the Holy Quran to understand what's happening, listening to religious leaders, um, listening to judges, you know, just really talking to people and understanding the environment that you're in is very, very important for that particular situation. Um, one of the main things that needed to happen, obviously, is that they needed to find their parents. They had no idea where their parents were. And so one of the things was talking to the government, um, talking to different mosques, having these announcement made in the mosques about where are their where are their parents, which they were eventually found, which was good. Making sure that they weren't being prosecuted, which they ultimately were not. Sharing the information that these kids knew with the government and with the military was very important so that the military and the government could understand where is the foundation of the problem, which it lied in where these kids were being recruited. You know, so that those are some of the general things that, that you do is just it's all learning by, by doing. There's no playbook or blueprint for this, or there wasn't for me anyway. Um, that's sort of something I'm trying to create for other people so that they won't have to do this trial and error that I had to do. Um, but it's always a huge learning curve with this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can only imagine. How do you, how, how do you feel like good enough when you're or even enough for all of these cases when there's just so much to learn and there's so many big these cases and problems to tackle? Well, you know, that's a good question. I don't think you ever really feel good enough because a lot of these cases, to be honest, yes, I can win these cases in court, but it doesn't really solve the problem because they're going back to the same, frankly, horrible environments. Um, so I try to be a little bit more longer term with my solutions beyond court, which I think is different for many lawyers. Um, but I find that in Afghanistan, I need to think beyond court for a lot of these problems. Um, but I'm always second guessing myself. And certainly, I mean, now it's great, you know, especially in the beginning, my family very much supported me. And that's what sort of really was my power would help me if my frankly if my family did not support what i what i was doing then i would not have been in afghanistan because that would not have been fair um but they did which was great um but i had many people second guessing what i was doing i mean now it's great um that you know i sort of have this these wins and these cases have worked out but in the beginning, it seemed as though everybody except my family was against what I was doing. Mm. So personally, I would retreat. I just would stay away from people that weren't involved. The only people that were really supporting me were my family and my clients. Um, and, you know, that was hard, to be honest. But it made me even more determined. It's about putting, pes making pessimist pessimism into optimism. And I've always been sort of, there's something in the glass type of girl. <laughs> I can work with something. <laughs> when you were, I guess, retreating at those, at those moments where it felt like the only people who were really supporting you were your clients and family, what were some of the things that you said to yourself to, to cross that threshold? Well, I think the number one thing I would say is there's nobody else. I mean, it's not like 
if I quit these cases, well, then a lawyer X will step into the shoes. There's nobody else, you know? And so that was a main thing, um, I think. Um, I think another thing was I would say to myself, this does not make sense. Like to me, everything that I was doing made complete sense, even though to other people it didn't make sense. To me, it made complete sense. And I couldn't see not, I could, I couldn't see not doing it. It just didn't make sense to not do it. Mm. That, that to me didn't make sense. Um, I don't know. I just saw the blueprint. I just saw like this problem and this is a solution and this solution, I'll get to this solution. So I think, you know, again, my family, my clients, um, very supportive. Um, but it was a really, and it still remains to be a big, huge burden because a lot of people, they don't have anybody. So if what I'm doing fails, it's, that's it. You know what I mean? There is, that's it, you know? And so, um, I don't know. It's always a struggle, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm guessing it doesn't make it any easier that you're an African-American woman in Afghanistan and an outsider in this male-dominated society. How did you earn respect? Well, you know, the thing about it is, is the race thing. This is a, frankly, from my travel, seems to be way more of a big problem in America than anywhere else in the world. Um, They don't look at me as an African-American, Asian racially. You know what I mean? Mm. They just look at me as an American. You know, in Afghanistan, it's either you're Afghan or you're a foreigner. Those are the lines. You know, you're male or you're female. Those are the lines. Um, And so I just was being who I am. You know, I mean, it wasn't like I was coming in like, oh, I want you guys to respect me. You know, it to me, it never was really a question if they're going to respect me. It was that, (laughs) you know, it, it just never has been for me. Mm -hmm. And when you walk into those courts, especially initially, um, these, these foreign courts where you're still learning the, the law, um, how, how are you feeling in those moments? You know, the court is my stage. I love court. (laughs) And I feel very, very powerful no matter what court I walk into because I feel like it's my boxing ring. It's the battleground. It's, you know, it's just my DJ booth. It's just where, you know, that's where my power is. And so I never, I always am unsure. Don't get me wrong. You know, I'm always sort of very anxious and just, you know, sort of trying to figure things out. But by the time I come to court, I know my stuff. You know what I mean? Like I, the going to court is the, being in court is the easy part. Everything leading up to court is the hard part. And I feel like by the time I get to court, I have my playlist together of what I'm going to play when I go there. You know, I know what I'm going to do. So for me, it's a very empowering experience. It's like my stage. Um, And I'm so focused on what my goal is that I think I like, it feels like I grow, you know, taller, you know what I mean? I don't Mm -hmm. know, explain it. Um, 
but it just it's just my thing. You know what I mean? It's just I don't know, it's my stage. Yes. It sounds like you become a superhero when you're <laughs> when you're on that stage. Yeah. yeah, I I I felt the similar way when um as a gymnast also right. getting on that stage and didn't matter how many people were in that crowd, didn't matter who was in that crowd. It was like I'm here for my purpose. I'm here to perform. I'm here to make things happen. Right. Exactly. Are things getting better in Afghanistan? Some things are and some things aren't. Um, I'll say the security is definitely getting worse, unfortunately, um, with the troop uh, levels that have decreased. Um, that definitely has affected the security in Afghanistan. Um, some things that have gotten better is when I went there in 2008, there were maybe, I don't even, there are less than 200 lawyers that were licensed. Now there's over a thousand, which is great. Mm. Um, the uh, birth mortality rate um, has decreased, which is great. Um, there have been more girls and boys in school um, during this nine years that I've been there. That's increased, which is which is great. There's a lot. There's a larger educated population. Um, there are a lot more females in politics and frankly, almost, almost every sector, which is great. Um, there are new laws that have been passed that are, um, very, uh, women friendly, which is great. Um, so I do think there's been some pros and cons, but security is always a major, major issue. And it's, uh, it's disappointing that that has significantly decreased, unfortunately. How do you stay hopeful in, in this climate? Well, I mean, because I think uh, selfishly, the fact that I've been able to do this for nine years says something about Afghanistan to a certain extent. Like they could have kicked me out years ago, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the fact that they let me continue to do my thing um, is sort of shows a certain level of open-mindedness, I think. Um, so that gives me hope. You know, I've seen clients really grow um, and do really cool things, which gives me a lot of hope. Um, you know, I see organizations like Women for Afghan Women, which is the largest women's shelter in the country, really see how they operate and what they do, which gives me hope and how they treat their clients, which is great, which gives me hope. Um, so I see these little victories in sort of my interactions with people. You know, I've seen people that were thinking about being a lawyer now that are lawyers, you know, which is great. And now they're coming to me asking me for advice and I'm asking them for advice, which is great. So that gives me hope. You know, I do see Afghan. I do believe obviously that Afghanistan is a country worth fighting for, um, whether that's figuratively or literally it's a country that I am personally invested in and will continue to be invested in and the people from my experience the afghan people have been have been really uh great in a lot of ways um what i do is not completely in a vacuum you know there i couldn't have done this without the help of many 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 afghans um which is great you know and, and they're my heroes in a lot of ways my clients are my heroes mm. um you know and, and i've seen I think one thing why I have such a special place in my heart for Afghanistan is before I went there, I had never traveled outside the U.S. And when I did go there, I really feel like I met the world in Afghanistan. 
you know, because of Afghanistan, I have clients in the UK and in Sweden and Australia and US, you know, all over the world because of except all Antarctica. Except for Antarctica. So <laughs> I really want the Antarctic client. <laughs> so because all these other countries were invested in Afghanistan also. And frankly, a lot of these countries and international companies operating in Afghanistan, they needed a lawyer in Afghanistan. So then that's sort of how what brought them to me. So that has been really interesting for me to deal with not just Afghan cultures, but all these other cultures um, of clients that I think has been great um, for me personally, as well as professionally. Um, Are you training associates to work with you? I would love to, to be honest, but it's been very difficult because I think my, my approach is a very hands-on approach to practicing law. I really fight systems from the inside out, and I've tried to hire other international and local lawyers um, to work with me. But with international lawyers, it's very difficult because they get scared very fast, unfortunately. And I can't really have that around me. Um, no fear. <laughs> you can have fear, but it can't be fear that resonates with clients. You know mm. what I mean? Because no client is a lawyer that's scary. Um, I don't want a lawyer like that because you lose confidence in your lawyer. Um, you know, if, if you're a lawyer, like when I go to the prison, it's me in a room with hundreds of other inmates. You cannot be scared in that environment because that other people will feed off of that. And that may, they may physically attack you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it could really put you in a very precarious security situation. So I'm not just trying to say it to sound bad. You know, I'm saying it from a real practical security standpoint. Um, I've tried to hire lawyers to only deal with the crim the commercial matters, but they've uh, every lawyer wants to do the criminal and human rights stuff, and then that's you know sort of where the problem lies. Now I have dealt with a lot of local local lawyers, and there's a certain amount of local lawyers that I try to increase their capacity. Um, especially with um, lawyers that deal with a lot of women's rights cases, because I think those cases are so important and they just don't stop. Um, so short answer is formally, no, I'm not training any associates, but I will say I have this vision where I'm going to create this law firm of really kick-ass lawyers. And that's something I'm sort of working on. Awesome. How do you know when you've done enough? Will there come a point? I don't know if that. Goes. <laughs> I don't that. I don't, I don't see an end to this. I don't know. <laughs> Who are some of the most influential people in your life? Um, well, definitely uh, my husband Claude. Definitely my kids, of course. Um, I have some very close friends that are very, very influential. Also, um, you mean personal or like professional? Like, well, I think they're intertwined. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's sort of people that I see doing stuff that I've never met them before that I want to sort of, that I think is really interesting to me. Um, I think, uh, you know, um, Brian Stevenson, he's a lawyer, he's very interesting to me. The things that he's doing, Amal Clooney, very interesting to me, um, doing some really cool stuff. Um, you know, and then there's, I don't know, I think, I think for me, litigation is, a, is an art form. Um, and it's my craft. So music to me is very interesting and in how people are able to cobble together 
different beats and whatnot to create a you know something musically beautiful that's interesting to me how do you get to that point because that's how i see my cases it's really just notes that are out there that it's my job to put them together in sort of this string of harmony that makes sense when i go to court mm. um so for that jay-z is very interesting to me um <laughs> you know uh we met uh, David Block at, at Hatch, and he, he is so cool. He gave me a DJ lesson the other day that was super interesting. He's very interesting to me. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Do you want your kids to be lawyers? I want my kids to be happy. Okay. And that, that's mm-hmm. what I want. They can be whatever they want to be. Whatever they want to be, I support that. <laughs> How do they feel now that they have a mom who's – often in Afghanistan, which is not the safest country to be in? Well, to be honest, my kids, I think we have a very different family. You know, my kids, they don't worry about it, I think, as much as other people probably do. Um, they, they're they used to this. You know, I, I was, you know, this is funny. I was in Cuba in December, and I got arrested in Cuba, and they thought that was hilarious. <laughs> you know, it's like, they don't, they're not worried like that like i think people would expect because they know who i am we know each other obviously <laughs> so they're used to it yeah well that's great i i know i i would be worried <laughs> i'm a worrier oh are you? okay but you yeah. know when you're used to like doing something for nine years i mean how that's true you keep yeah yeah you know i mean it's like you know you're you're a, a world-renowned gymnast how many times people worry about you falling? You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah. at some point, yeah, let that go. Yeah. You know, just what I'm doing. It's like you you walk, you like walk into the uncomfortable zone. It's like no matter whatever right. underlying anxiety or worry there is, I just, I'm kind of like, okay, it's there, but I got to rise above that. Right. If you quit today that, then your people will be worried. Mm-hmm. That would worry people if you stop doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Kim, this has been incredible. Um, one of the more unique stories that I've heard and, and definitely doing some of the, I mean, only foreign lawyer in Afghanistan who's so respected. And uh, one of the things that we do at the end of each show is called The One Thing. And it comes from the notion that all it takes is one thing, one moment, one voice one person to completely change someone's perspective, to change the world, the way the world operates. Clearly you've done that. Um, So we'll ask you about some of your one things and just try and keep your answers to about 30 seconds. Okay. What is one book that you would unhesitatingly recommend and why? 1984. George Orwell. Oh, yeah. Okay. 1984, because it, it answers so many of the contemporary political and government problems that are happening right now. Mm. How to fix it. What is one truth you believe that others may not believe? There is no box. Mm. What is one mantra you live by? There is no box. <laughs> um, what is... One piece of advice you want to give to the audience? Um, If it feels right, then do it. Um, Use people's negativity for positive to propel you forward and just do it. 
just do it. Stop questioning yourself and just do it. Mm. What's one question you wish people would ask more often? How can I get this done? And finally, I like to keep these not only valuable in their stories, but also actionable and, and something that listeners can do today. So what is one challenge you would like to issue to the audience? One challenge that I would like to um, issue to the audience is to, um, you know, I love being an American and I love America, but I think we need to also not forget to look beyond our borders, that things that are happening globally also affect us locally. So one challenge that I would have is to really pay attention to also what's happening globally and figure out what you can do to help in those situations, such as, you know, a child brides happen in the U.S., but they also happen more globally. You know, how can I help to alleviate that problem? Because it is a problem that affects education, health, um, things like that. Um, fighting around the world. You know, what can, what can I do to help alleviate those issues? Um, how to make problems that right now seem invisible, how to make them more visible to people, I think is, is very, very important. So get out of your box. <laughs> get out of your box. Get off your butt. Get out of your box. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And what's the best way for people to, whether it's follow you or get in touch with you? Um, the best way is through my email um, or, you know, people always Facebook message or Twitter message. If people want to follow me, you know, social media, Facebook and Twitter is always a good way. I'll be honest. I'm not the best poster of those things um, because just not. Um, but those are the best ways uh, through my email, kcymotley, M-O-T-L-E-Y at gmail.com or through my uh, Twitter and Facebook. Awesome. Can't wait to read your book next year and keep following your adventures. Yes, definitely. Thanks. Thank you. There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. I created the Enoughness podcast to reveal the real stories behind the leaders we admire to address this universal question that we all have at some point or another. Am I good enough? So just remember that you're not on this journey alone and that you do have the power of enoughness. If you want the full show notes and transcript from today's episode, go to www.lisawang.co slash podcast. Again, that's lisawang.co slash podcast and you'll be able to follow along. I'd love if you could leave a review or tag anything that you share on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag enoughness. And you can find me at LisaWorks, L-I-S-A-W-O-R-X on Twitter or Instagram. Catch you in the next episode.